Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Jasmine Singer. And this is Marianne Sullivan. Thank you for joining us this week. Marianne's guest this week is Isa Leshko, who is an extraordinarily gifted photographer and very passionate animal advocate. Her book, Allowed to Grow Old, Portraits of Elderly Rescued Farm Animals, is truly a thing of beauty and a reminder to all of us of why we devote our lives to fighting for these animals, most of whom, of course, are never allowed to grow old. I'm so moved just by the title. Like, it kind of makes me want to cry. Most people don't even know that that they are killed when they're babies. They just think they don't get elderly. But even if you, whether you know that or not, the fact is, is that they don't exist for their own lives. And, and, and the idea that some of them are allowed to grow old, it, it really is. It was an inspiring choice for a book. I found this interview really inspiring. She's a really interesting person. Yeah, totally. I'm very excited about this. You chatted with her for the bonus segment. And so if you are in the flock, then you will get an email uh, on Tuesday after this podcast episode goes up, or you can always find it on the flock Facebook group. And if you're not a member of the flock and you can afford it, you can join for $10 a month at ourhenhouse.org. Oh, and if you are in the flock, please join us for our Flock Friday Zoom calls, which are once a month on the first Friday of the month at 4 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time, where we focus on our veganism, on our activism, and how to take care of ourselves. We talk to some inspiring former podcast guests. So if you are a member of the flock, make sure to check out the flock Facebook group for updates on that. And you can also set up one-on-ones with me if you're in the flock to discuss your veganism or your activism or whatever else you want to chat about. So if that calls to you, then email Jen at Jen at ourhenhouse.org. And remember to vote. <laughs> How was that transition? Yeah, it, it, it might not have been a great transition, but I was the one who said, Let, let's start off chatting by reminding everybody to vote. Because I just had to register to vote because as you may have heard since it's all we ever talk about. We recently moved to Rochester. So that means we have to register to vote. So if you're not registered, it's the time is passing. And don't think just because, of course, nobody listening to this would be so foolish. Don't think just because it's a small local election and not a big national election that it's not important. They're all important. You never know who you're going to get to vote for. Yeah, exactly. Very exciting. One of the things I also wanted to talk about, aside from the most important thing, which was reminding people to vote, was this article I saw. It's not about animal rights. It's about Chevron. And I just saw it. It was in Rolling Stone. And it just rang a bell for me vis-a-vis animal rights. Even though the topic itself is important in and of itself, I just think it's a whole thing that covers a lot of different kinds of activism. And it was about how Chevron, since I don't watch like network TV Uh, I don't see that many ads, but apparently they have been running ads constantly, spending a huge amount of money on ads. All of the ads are about saving the environment. uh, They were describing some of them in this article and talking about how, you know, it's this like, it's like a little girl smelling the flowers and and, and just uh, (laughs) like nothing to do with oil just talking about how great they are in the environment. And apparently Chevron, according to Rolling Stone, is like, even among oil companies, it's bad. <laughs> like It's just horrific. Right. And uh, it just, I mean, obviously greenwashing is not new, but the level at which it's going on just really reminded me 
of a lot of what I've been reading in animal agriculture. I think because we're entering crises, this process of greenwashing or humane washing in the case of animals is really stepping up. You do see more greenwashing than than humane washing in animal agriculture, I think, because, because of a couple of things. Maybe they don't think that people care about the way animals are treated or don't know that much about the way that animals are treated. And that would seem to be somewhat justified because people, you know, we all know people don't seem to care, uh, though I think they do care. You just can't seem to act on it. But the other the other reason is is that I think this is really crucial. There's nothing good for them to say. Like you know, they try to trot out that like they're going cage free, uh, but in the fa- in fact they're going cage free slower than they were supposed to, slower than they promised to, and cage free ain't no walk in the park for the animals. So there's not that much they can say without lying. I, you know, I think this makes consumer protection law that much more of a positive uh, tactic for animal lawyers. And and I just think it's going to, you know, it's going to be a continuing huge challenge. They're going to continue to lie as much as they can get away with because it's all that they can do. But it's not it's not the only thing that I've been thinking about vis-a-vis the environmental movement and the similarity and, you know, maybe what we can learn and how these movements are kind of need to use kind of the same tactics. And I, I call this the Tesla syndrome. I made that up, though it might be widespread out there. So don't blame me if you, if you don't get it, uh, if, if you've heard it a million times. But I just think this is so hugely important for us and so entirely possible now. Don't sell your substitute products as virtuous. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think, you know, we're the ones who were virtual, you know, we are, we're the ones who are virtuous, at least on this issue. We're the ones who bought that line. Nobody else buys it. Like the Tesla syndrome, what I mean is like electric cars were just seen as clunky little uh, virtuous types of cars that didn't, that nobody wanted to buy except for really good people until Tesla and Tesla sold it as a luxury vehicle. And, you know, their lowest model isn't, I mean, it ain't cheap, but I don't think it's like, it's not like 200,000. It's like, I don't know, within this, the range of normal, like fancy cars, like $35,000, $40,000, I think. But they, they're, they're fabulous. I mean, have you ever sat in one? They just feel very special. They're incredibly clean uh, panel in the front. And they're just a little different. They're fancy. They're Teslas. It's like, it's like, cool to have a Tesla. And that is exactly what I think our approach should be with, with, with vegan food or with any other, other, uh, any other substitute product. Like they're not as good as they're better than they're cooler. They're more beautiful. They're more delicious. They're more luxurious. I don't think healthier, healthier just works on some people too. And, you know, it's fine to throw it in there. But I'm talking, people are sold by, by prestige and fanciness and, and, and beauty. And I think I really want to lean into that. You know, vegan ice cream isn't as good as regular ice cream. Oh, and I shouldn't call it regular ice cream either. As dairy, as, as, no, I shouldn't call it dairy either. What do we call it? Slaughter-based ice cream. (laughs) Yeah. It's not as good as, it's better. Well, I do agree with you that this is something that any, any kind of social change needs to be not only positioned as something that will help you make a choice that's in alignment with your ethics, but most pressingly it needs to be touted as something that will 
significantly improve your life. Like the taste will significantly improve it. And it can't, it, it, it can't be the martyr card that people are sold because they're not going to buy it. You know, I've, I've read about this in various other aspects of social justice about how like the whole, uh, you know, stepping aside isn't going to work for a lot of people. It sort of needs to be touted as something that will significantly improve your life. And I, I, if you're like me, that gives you kind of like a gag reflex. Like I hate that. I hate that that's how it has to be sold, but I think strategically it does. I love your comparison to Tesla. I love what you were talking about with Chevron and just like the way that this can be positioned as something that will make you enjoy your life more because people are just self-centered and they're also caught up in their, in their habits every day. So in my opinion, the two easiest, quickest ways of changing the world for animals are to make things a total no brainer, put it in, put it on the menus in front of them, make it the same price in the grocery store right next to the meat product. And two, make, sell it as something that will improve your life. You know, like I am very moved by art and creativity and doing the most good I can, but I don't think most people are motivated by that. Unfortunately. And and they want to be, and they think it's good, but, but that is not what moves people to new products, especially food. People want food basically that's yummy. I, I can understand that. But they just don't realize that vegan food, this isn't a lie. I'm not suggesting that people should lie. It is better. Like, like, like what people just don't know that. They think it's, oh, they think it's good for you. Nobody wants to eat anything that's good for you. Well, a few people do, but not very many. So that's my, that's my thought for the week. I'm going to be right way outside my normal comfort zone and be enthusiastic and positive about deliciousness. Normally I'm, I'm negative about everything, but, um, but we all got to do what we can for the animals. And, uh, what, so what's going, what has your week been like? What have you been thinking about and writing about? Well, I have this, this sub stack and actually as we're recording, I haven't done my weekly post yet, but that's my newsletter, which you can find at jasminesinger.substack.com. There's no E on Jasmine. And, uh, the last few ones that I've been writing about include how to radically let go, how to get rid of anxiety, how to deal with life when you lose your balance, which was actually something that I was equating with actually losing my balance because I was going through some vertigo. But I wound up broadening the scope of it into something a bit more metaphorical. So I, yeah, I've been just sort of writing about things that bat around in my head. I was thinking about writing about all of the various ways that women can be called bossy, sometimes using the B word bossy and sometimes using other words like intense or aggressive or speaks too loudly or, you know, all of these things, it kind of bugs me, you know? I mean, I've certainly been called several of those things and I genuinely don't think I'm bossy. I genuinely think that I have, I can have a strong energy, but how else are we going to change the world for animals? And and the gender inequities there, even though we're like, you know, in 2021, kind of boggle my mind. So this is something that I've been thinking about a lot, especially vis-a-vis activism when like we can't really be wallflowers. And so those are some of the things that I have been writing about lately. 
Uh, and then also, I have the very exciting news that I was cast in a film. I think people who listen to this for a while might know that I also am an actor from time to time. And it was pretty funny to move to Rochester and get cast in a film in Rochester, which I'm very excited about. But like their craft services, I told them I was vegan. And so they all were like, just really thrown by it. Like in a way I'm not totally used to. So they called me the other day and they said, we're planning the menu. Do you eat donuts? And I was like, well, I eat vegan donuts. <laughs> and they were like, okay, I just wasn't sure you eat donuts. And I was like, I just don't eat anything that had a mother, you know? And there was a moment and everyone just started laughing. Like it was the funniest thing they'd ever heard. <laughs> They were like, oh, interesting that you're putting it that way. So I am excited about doing it. I do love acting very much. And so it'll be really fun to be able to do that for a while. Those are kind of the things going on with me, just still in the middle of this net zero project with the house. Like currently, as I'm speaking, they're setting up the geothermal, which is very exciting. But as I get more and more involved in these eco projects on my house, I am more and more aware of how easy it is to go vegan because some of these projects like geothermal and solar and wind new triple pane windows and insulation, they can be complicated. They shouldn't be, but they can be. But veganism, it's like, you know, not hard. So it, it sort of like re reclaims that for me. And that's about it. That's all that's happening in my little world. It's kind of a lot, actually. And I totally agree with you. Veganism is the the easy, it, it's not just easy, it's better than not going vegan. So uh, I love that story about your, your film producers. Let's hope it sticks. I'll let you know because I'm shooting it this weekend. So stay tuned. But let's get to the interview. Isa Leshko is a fine art photographer who focuses on themes relating to animal rights, aging, and mortality. She is the author of Allowed to Grow Old, Portraits of Elderly Rescued Farm Animals, which was published last year by the University of Chicago Press. The book, which is now in its second printing, was selected by BuzzFeed as one of the best photography books of 2019 and was a coffee table book recommendation for the New York Times 2019 Holiday Gift Guide. That is so cool. Remember 2019? Seems like... Uh, vaguely. I don't really... Yeah. I was, anyway... I, I think it was 25 then. Mm, yeah, that's right. <laughs> so Marianne will be joined by Iza Leshko right after this. If you like what you're listening to, and I hope you do, then please consider taking a minute out of your day today to leave us a friendly review. You can do it on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or Stitcher or on Facebook or wherever you listen to podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. The more we get out there, the more our hen house will be in front of people's eyeballs when they're putting in search terms in their podcasts and the more we could join forces together to elevate the voices of the animals and change the world for them. So thank you so much in advance for leaving us a friendly review. Welcome to our hen house, Iza. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. I'm thrilled to have you. And we've been wanting to put this interview together for a long time because we were so excited about your book when it came out. It's just so different. And what I'd like to start off with, and to some extent for personal reasons, I'd like to start off with the backstory of how you came to take on the project. And I, I find it so rich in so many ways. It's kind of personal because I had a mother who had dementia before her death. So, and I know that's an important part of your story. Yeah, I'm sorry uh, to hear that. What happened was 
you know, I didn't consciously set out to embark on this project. I was visiting my sister's in-laws and they had uh, a very old horse named Petey. And I had this, you know, encounter with him. The moment I saw him, I was just completely mesmerized and he was just so beautiful. Um, and he was so visibly old, um, but that's what I found so beautiful. And um, I ran into the house, grabbed a camera. I only had my little toy Holga with me and I spent the afternoon photographing him. And I didn't understand why I was so drawn to him um, until I looked at my film. And I realized that uh, I was processing a lot of my grief um, from the last few years. Uh, prior to meeting Petey, my sister and I had been focused heavily on caring for both our parents, actually. My father had had cancer and my mom had Alzheimer's disease. And I moved down uh, to New Jersey. I was living in Massachusetts, where I am living now. And uh, I was spending a lot of time living with my sister and taking care of my parents. And it was exhausting. I thought about photographing my family. There are a number of photographers who've done that as fine art projects. But it just didn't feel right. I wanted to be fully present as a daughter and as a sister. And I was just honestly so exhausted. I couldn't even think about photographing my parents. And I also had issues with regards to consent. Mm -hmm. My mom was pretty vain. Um, and I, I know she would never have wanted to be seen in public the way she looked in those final years. So I, I really felt uncomfortable photographing her. I took a few, you know, personal photos that um, I wouldn't share publicly. But so when I saw Petey and I looked at my images, I realized that I was drawn to him because I was still dealing with the trauma of seeing both my parents um, in declining health, particularly my mom, who was my dad had had entered remission, so he was relatively stable at that point, and my mom though was diminishing rapidly. I thought about at that point photographing animals, and there was a uh, I, I returned back to Massachusetts, and there was a sanctuary um, not too far from my house, Winslow Farm, and I uh, contacted the director and uh, she was like, yeah, come photograph. And I didn't know what I was doing. I spent several uh, trips, uh, long afternoons, mm -hmm. photographing the elderly residents there. I still wasn't thinking of it as a project, but I was learning how to photograph animals at that point, uh, thinking through some of the ethics of photographing animals, learning how to um, how to approach it uh, these images as portraits, um, and that was intuitive from the beginning. But at that point in the project, I was thinking of it as a way looking at my fear of aging, um, processing my grief. My grandmother had dementia. My mom had it. So I'm 
terrified of I getting hear, older. Yeah. So I it hear, runs yeah. in your family as well. Yeah, my grandmother, my mother. Yeah, it's very scary stuff. Yeah, you know, so, you know, when I lose my keys or forget something like the, uh, a name. Oh, just wait. Oh, my God. Just wait is a. <laughs> oh, the best is yet to come. Uh, I can't remember na- like names. Yeah. And, you know, I keep reading that this is just a normal, this is not a side of dementia. It's just a normal change in, but, uh, oh, God. Anybody out there who I meet on the street, if I don't remember your name, please forgive me. Same with me. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, yeah, you know, initially I was thinking of it as like, you know, I, in my earlier work, I like to photograph what I was afraid of, you know, and that was my uh-huh. way of processing it. This is so such an important thing in your process here. And uh, you talked in a number of places about the beginnings of the project being rooted in your own fears of dementia and death. But then I read Ann Wilkes Tucker's afterward, and she talks about how you resisted treating these animals as proxies for your own concerns, even though you kind of started out thinking in that way. Mm-hmm. And it, it came to seem exploitative for you. I think this is hugely important and very rare. I, I just find that so, and Jasmine and I have talked about this a number of times, so many of the things that are lauded as being about animals are actually about animals as metaphors mm-hmm. or animals as instructive or helpful in some way. And you avoided that. How How do you think you arrived at at understanding or having a kind of distaste for that kind of approach? I think for me, visiting the farm sanctuaries, meeting survivors of industrialized agriculture, hearing their stories, that transformed me. I had been a vegetarian all of my adult life, but there was something about experiencing an a connection with a with a rescued farmed animal that was just so powerful for me and at that point it felt exploitive to pro- project my emotional baggage onto these animals and it was really important uh one of the things that's striking at farm sanctuaries and certain uh, listeners are already aware of this is that Animals at sanctuaries are treated as individuals. They're given names. They are given individualized care. And they have their own personal likes, their dislikes. And those are accommodated at these sanctuaries. And so the focus is that these are individuals, sentient individuals with distinct personalities. So it seemed really wrong to visit a sanctuary and not treat the animals in that way, in the way uh, they were being treated at, at these sanctuaries and, and how they should be treated in the yeah. larger world. That, that was the kind of light bulb moment for me. It's extraordinary. I find so few people manage to have that particular, you know, they might care about the animals, but to have that particular insight that, it's not about me, it's about them, is pretty rare. And I'm just kind of wondering, did at the same time, did coming to know these animals, even understanding that they were not a metaphor for your life and not seeing them as proxies, but seeing them as themselves, did it inform your own perceptions around disability and death? Or do you, did, did those just become separate topics? You know, it was still always there. 
in the back of my mind, you know, um, what became an important part of my process was before entering an enclosure and photographing an animal. And I should also add that I wouldn't just immediately start photographing uh, an animal when I met them. I I thought that was kind of rude, actually. (laughs) Um, So I spent time frequently not even photographing the animals, just kind of lying on the ground, um, observing them, letting them observe me, you know, who is this woman? You know, recognizing that they were trauma survivors, you know, and letting them dictate. Uh, whether they wanted to be photographed and how they wanted to be photographed. As part of my process, I I would clear my head. And, you know, I, I, I wasn't really meditating at the time, although I guess you could call it meditating, but it wasn't meditating with capital M. <laughs> um, and I would just clear my mind and, and try to be as present as possible, you know, um, at that point, while uh, working on the project, I, you know, my mom was still declining. There was a lot of stuff going on. And, you know, I would do my best to not bring it into my encounters with these animals. That would still sometimes, uh, nonetheless, you know, percolate up to the surface. You know, in my introduction, I talk about an encounter with Gandalf who was a blind uh, old turkey at Posado's safe haven. He had, like a lot of blind animals, uh, he had a blank stare on in his eyes. And it was a really sweltering hot, hot day. Turkeys, when they're hot, they cool themselves by breathing through their beaks. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, he had that blank stare um, in his eyes. And he had his beak open and it brought me right back to being at my mom's bedside uh, when she was catatonic. Hmm. I lost it. You know, I, I had to leave. I was crying. And it took several attempts, you know, several visits until I was able to really see Gandalf and not my mom. Oh, I'm so glad you held out until you could do that because that must have been incredibly painful. Yeah. You know, but it wasn't fair to Gandalf and it wasn't fair to the sanctuary uh, staff because they adored him. You know, sometimes when I I would visit a sanctuary, you know, there were certain residents, they they love all of the residents, don't get me wrong, but there were always a few residents that were, were, People had formed uh, a particularly close bond with, of course, and I would yeah. feel uh, even more pressure uh, to really capture. And I hate using that term; that's that's such a violent term. <laughs> to, <laughs> you're, to, you're, I never thought of that. It is, it is very oppressive, isn't it? Yeah, you capture. Know? Yeah, and shooting. I I stopped using the word shooting. Wow when talking about photography, you know, I think it was with, uh, it was, I forget which sanctuary, but I had said, you know, let's go through which animals I'm going to (laughs) shoot. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. 
isn't that horrible? Yeah. And, you know, I looked into research, the history of animal photography, and there's a reason why that language is used, uh, because in early animal photography, it was linked with hunting. Hunters would photograph animals that they had recently killed and use them as hunting trophies. And so, um, and then, you know, it started uh, as camera technology got better and you could photograph live animals. It then became camera hunting where they would photograph animals in the wild and then they would shoot and kill. So there is this violent history of photographing animals. That's so interesting. You know, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about I was unaware of that kind of violent history, but photography has also become a hugely important part of advocacy. You know, can you just give give us what you think is the key to photographs that get under people's skin, that make them think? Because we all know that telling people about what's happening to animals is different than showing them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, I, I think that just as with animal advocacy, there's no one right approach, people will respond to different things. So some people need to see data. <laughs> Other people need to see powerful images or read about, you know, read Jonathan Safer Foyer's The Eating Animals, for example. Still others, uh, just if they find tasty uh, plant-based foods, they'll eat them. So, you know, there isn't a single s- solution. And I think that's the same thing that uh, with photography. And that's important to keep in mind. So my approach is not necessarily the be-all and end-all approach. There is a space for images of animal suffering, and that is incredibly important and historically that's been um, incredibly powerful as an advocacy tool. But there are a lot of people who are turned off by that, who will just not look at these images. I think, and, and I have to say, I have huge respect for the photographers, particularly Joanne MacArthur, who immerse themselves in these horrific environments and expose themselves to trauma in order to photograph and document and bear witness to what's happening. So I'm, I do not mean to diminish that in any way. I have huge respect for that work. But I also recognize that some people will respond more to beauty. I think beauty can also be a powerful advocacy tool by creating these images that are really rich tonally and kind of classically beautiful. I draw people to them. Hopefully at that point, then they'll begin to consider mm. the, the lives of these in- animals and the impact that their actions have on the lives of animals like them. Yeah, I, I totally hear. I, I'm really glad to hear you say that because you do hear people just condemning like footage, you know, horrible footage, uh, because it causes them so much pain to see it. And they don't think it will change other people. But people really do vary in what affects them. And how many people have I heard say, 
they became an animal activist because they saw earthlings, which is, I have never seen the whole thing. Like I've seen pieces of it because I couldn't help it. <laughs> I mean, it's just as brutal yeah. as it gets. Right. But for some people, that's the wake up call. And yeah, we see, we need every possible tool. And even though you take a very different approach, uh, I, I'm glad to hear you that you respect that approach as well. But your approach really does appeal more. It, it appeals to the heart, um, not with with horror, but uh, but. I don't like, I don't like, I don't even know why these animals are so moving and, and you really capture them within, within these photographs. What kind of reactions have you gotten? You know, if, I, I want to hear what you, what kind of reactions you get from animal advocates, of course, but really who cares? Uh, <laughs> more importantly, <laughs> but more importantly, what about people who are not used to thinking seriously about animals? Like, what kind of effect have you had? I, and I don't mean, you know, who cares, but, but they're already on board. So, uh, so. And that actually was an important part of um, the, my thinking about the book, actually, I did not want to preach to the choir, you know, as much as I wanted these images to provide comfort to activists, to see animals, to see what they're, they're fighting for uh, and working hard toward a day when animals would be able to be respected as individuals and be allowed to grow old and live in peace and comfort. I did feel like this book in a lot of respects was a love letter to the sanctuary work, uh, staff who dedicate their their uh, their lives and work in horrific conditions, all weather, cold, extreme heat, you know, to to be with these animals and care for them. But but I didn't want to preach to the choir. And so that that's one of the reasons why I chose the University of Chicago Press to publish the book with. What's interesting is I get a range of reactions. There are people, I, I get letters from people who have told me they've gone vegan or vegetarian from seeing my images. And that's, that's always just incredibly rewarding. And then I also get these deeply personal letters from people who have connected to the origins of the of the project and have told me about their own caregiving experiences. Then we have a bit of a dialogue and hopefully they 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 get to where I was where they're not just seeing the animals as metaphors. I had asked the question about avoiding using them as metaphors. And I don't really mean this question to bring up that idea, but I wonder if you feel there are parallels between the way animals, I mean, commodified animals are thought about and, and the way we treat so many of our elderly. I mean, you know, mm -hmm. obviously we, we don't kill and eat the elderly, but you know, they are warehoused, they're hidden away. They're, they're definitely seen as lesser, particularly if, if their cognitive abilities are, are diminishing. Did you see some parallels there? I didn't really go there mentally because I, I I really did want to center my focus on non-human animals. I do think, though, one thing that I did notice is that part of the media's reaction to the work initially was, uh, you know, they're so used to seeing cute baby 
animal pictures and a recognition of the ageism that exists in our society. Why are we so fixated on baby animals instead of more mature animals? And so I think that there was some dialogue and recognition around the ageism um, that exists there. I will say for me, being with these survivors, I mean, it really is nothing short of a miracle to be in the presence of an elderly farm animal. I mean, when you think about the billions of land animals that are factory farmed each year, these animals who are rescued and naked to sanctuaries, they're an infinitesimal percentage (laughs) of the farmed animals that exist. So it really is a miracle to be in the presence of these animals. And and that did help me recognize that, you know, aging can be a luxury and is a luxury, you know. Um, These animals are survivors, and I did want to celebrate that. As far as the ageism that human animals experience, it works both ways. We we want what the animals that I photographed and want what what we all want, which is to age in comfort and to be respected, to to be allowed to age with dignity. And you know, when I think about what you're saying, the sanctuaries can be a a model for that. Because you're right, it doesn't happen uh, as often as it should among humans. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I spent a lot of times in nursing homes when my mother was ill, and you know, it, it's it's a pretty ugly, ugly scene. And and even even beyond that, even beyond the real warehousing that goes on when people are very ill, there's the, just that whole. I, like in, in your work, you just don't see this at all, even though you're dealing with animals who were constantly kind of diminishing as, oh, they're so cute or, you know, like as if they're toys. Mm-hmm. You see that with the elderly, like people just think, oh, she's so cute. You know, mm-hmm. elderly people aren't necessarily cute. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like they're smart and experienced and, and thoughtful uh, many, a lot of the times, or maybe they're horrible and mean and, 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 and terrible, but they, they have personalities. They're not just like, there seems to be a parallel there with for me with the um the way we treat animals as well. We don't recognize them as full beings, and I think yeah. that happens sometimes to the elderly as well. Yeah. You know, I saw this article in the Guardian about your work, and the interviewer made clear that he grew up on a small farm where a few of the animals were uh, quote unquote kept back mm-hmm. as pets or favorites. Yeah, and he said, I thought this was such an interesting line. He said that it demonstrated that his family's compassion wasn't non-existent but selective. And he seemed to think that was fine. <laughs> but but right. I, th- I thought it expressed everything that is wrong with humans. I mean, you know, there's there are a few amazing psychopaths who feel no compassion for anybody, but most people have compassion and it just doesn't extend very far. You make the effort in telling the animal stories to try to make clear that these animals were not exceptional. These aren't special animals. These aren't different animals. They just survived somehow through a miracle. And how do we get people to understand this? It's It seems so obvious, but it clearly isn't. You know, I think part of the problem is that we exist in our own little 
fortresses. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't know how to quite articulate this because it's something I've been thinking about quite a bit, but I haven't yet written about. I recently have stopped using Twitter and Facebook because I realized that it isn't an effective advocacy tool. People will... We, we exist in these um, information silos. We, we seek out only opinions that we agree with. We can exist that way. You know, it's, it's really easy to go through life without encountering or engaging with opinions that uh, we don't agree with or people whose backgrounds are different from ours or, or ideological views are different from ours. And I think that that is diminishing our capacity to empathize with each other. And and the other thing that happens is we're we're uh, so much of social media is preaching to the choir. A lot of activists, you know, repeatedly are posting memes that get shared a lot. But you know, a lot of that is is mainly preaching to the choir, or if I want to be a little cynical, it's performance and in the effort of building a large following. So I'm trying to think about how to engage, you know, Jasmine actually wrote, she she has a substack that I recently subscribed to, and she wrote about the challenge of not preaching to the choir. And I think that that's something that all of us activists are grappling with. And I honestly don't have answers to that. I will say that treating my work as fine art, exhibiting the images in galleries and museums, publishing a book that uh, was geared toward a wide audience. That was how I tried to reach people or try, I continue to try to reach people who haven't thought about the lives of these animals before. Farm animals are invisible in our society. And part of the reason why I make the images that I do is to try to center the animals in people's minds. That's hard. How to get people's attention in this information-saturated world is really challenging. Even, you know, Instagram, you know, that's my one, (laughs) I'm calling it my social media methadone (laughs) at this point, because it is really the only platform I'm still using. But Instagram has changed fundamentally, and and the internet in general has fundamentally changed the way we engage with images, you know? There's no context. So you can see this heartbreaking image of refugee kids in cages right next to these selfies, next to um, ads about clothing. And, um, you know, there's no, and, and people just keep flipping, you know, there, you just keep scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. And so, you know, it, Part of what I try to do with my work is it's um, Carrie Cronin actually compared it to the slow food movement or the slow movement. I take a long time to create these images and to do the post-processing. I want people to have 
a long encounter with these images. So my preference actually is for someone to pick up the book and look at the images that way or see them on a gallery or museum wall. I think that in some ways, um, Instagram diminishes the impact that images have because there's just no context. And you're you're also not in control of what images you see. Instagram is. <laughs> so Yeah. It really it's a really thoughtful response and and the idea that we need to we need to get people to slow down in how they process this information does seem to be so valuable. I'm not sure I have any suggestions. I mean you have some suggestions about how to make that happen by making these extraordinarily beautiful images, even if it's something that people aren't entirely comfortable seeing, if the image is beautiful, people might spend time looking at it. Can you talk a little bit about that process? Like, because you mentioned that you spend a lot of time on each of these images. Can you just, can you just talk about the process of taking them? Getting, you, you talked a little bit about getting to know the animal, but, but how do you, how do you, go from hi my name my name is Issa, <laughs> to uh to like it's in the book i thought as i worked on the project i thought a lot also about the ethics of photographing animals and and this is something that i do want to spend more time writing about because i think that all too often sadly photographers don't think about this. So not only are they using animals as metaphors or scenery, when they are photographing the animals, they're doing so in a way that doesn't respect who they are. It was incredibly important to me that I meet the animals on their terms, not mine. I kept my equipment to a minimum. I I found rather quickly that it was best to leave my camera bag outside of the enclosures because goats in particular, but also chickens and pigs love to like root around um, (laughs) my camera bag uh, in, in hopes of some finding something tasty. I really eschewed using lighting equipment. I tried using a reflector, but I found that was really distracting Uh, I ultimately chose not to use tripods because, you know, even old animals move quickly. Um, And I also Mm. felt like it was another piece of equipment that was kind of intimidating, potentially intimidating. I I wanted to recognize and, and be sensitive to the fact that these animals are trauma survivors. And like with humans, they have different personalities. Some are outgoing and friendly. Others are really shy. Consent was also really important. Animals aren't able to sign photo releases the way humans are, but they are able to communicate or they do communicate very clearly when they want to be left alone. I always hate the phrase voice for the voiceless because I really believe that the animals do have voices. It's it's us humans that are, are really bad at listening to these voices. I try to do as much as possible to uh, have the animals control how they were being photographed. I would follow them. They weren't posed. I also wanted to have them 
control where they were going, you know, it be completely in control. And I also didn't like shadow them. You know, I gave them some space. I would follow them, but, but stay back for a while. You know, I didn't want them to feel crowded. It would frequently take me several days um, to photograph one animal because my setup was so, uh, you know, I didn't use lighting. I used an all manual camera, <laughs> um, didn't have a tripod. I took a lot of really bad blurry photos. <laughs> Anybody who's ever photographed an an animal is so relieved to hear that because you do take <laughs> just stand still. <laughs> I, uh, you know, uh, animals and kids. Um, but you know, I'd look at my images and be like, "Wow, I really suck." And then you know, and then I would see an image that would just completely blow me away. You know, I, it was important that I photograph the animals at eye level. That was the other thing. I thought it was disrespectful to photograph the animals from above. I Mm. wanted to treat them as peers because they are. And I wanted the viewer to be able to look these animals in the eye and have an intimate experience with them. In the initial prints, I only printed them at the size of nine, nine by nine. I also uh, presented the images in a small as small uh, prints because uh, they were nine by nine inches um, because I wanted the viewer to get right close to the images Mm, and mm. have that one-on-one experience with them. I eventually printed uh, uh, some of the larger animals, the horses, uh, the cows at a larger size, but uh, they were still relatively small, 16 by or 18 by 18 inches. I really wanted to, I wanted people to recognize that these were portraits and to recognize that these were individuals. I think I, I just find this whole description so thoughtful and empowering and how different art can be when animals are taken seriously and not as metaphors and seen for who they are. And when the the techniques of art serve that goal it just it just really changes everything and changes the impact that that these photographs can have it, it i i'm just blown away by your work is and and Aww. it's uh it's such important work do you have plans to continue uh working with animals in any way yeah you know so with covid that i've kind of been derailed yeah along with uh the the world <laughs> yeah <laughs> Yeah, but my next project that I really want to focus on is photographing animals at birth and photographing the early bonding between moms Ah. and babies, looking at the other end of the life spectrum, because just as old age is denied animals farmed for food, um, uh, motherhood is as well. Um, so I, 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 my hope is that by photographing that bonding relationship and that birth experience, people will, viewers will, will stop and recognize what these animals are being deprived of. That's going to be in a very long project because I refuse to photograph animals on commercial farms. So, yeah. They don't often give birth on on sanctuaries, but it does happen. Right. It does happen, you know. Um, and then there's the logistics of 
having to, you know, I'll have probably at most 72 hours to just get on a plane and photograph. So, so I'm still working through some of the logistical issues around that. Since I've been in the studio a lot, I've been doing a lot of looking at archival material, um, thinking about potentially incorporating that into collages, vintage photographs of animals, looking at industry materials. One of the things that was interesting was uh, last year when slaughterhouses were being closed because of COVID, the various like pork industry and uh, the various uh, agricultural groups published documents about how to prolong an animal's or delay uh, an animal reaching slaughter weight, which is completely different from their approach uh, normally, which is to to fatten up the animal as quickly as possible so that they reach slaughter weight as quickly as possible. And so it was fascinating to see them talking about, uh, you know, allowing the animals outdoors will will prolong uh, their reaching slaughter weight. So, you know, seeing that recognition yeah. uh, in in print was was interesting. And I'm not certain where that's going to end up, but I, I, I've got a, a big archive of this. Wow. Sounds like you have much rich material to work with. Um, yeah. And I know that everything will take you a long time because because obviously your meticulous attention to detail requires that. But we'll all be really looking forward to to seeing the results of your next project. Uh, oh, I'm really excited you. about your work. Thanks so much for telling us about it. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. It's really been a joy. Thanks. Hey, our Hen House listeners, it's Siobhan O'Sullivan here from Sydney, Australia, just dropping into this episode to share some exciting news. ASA is the Australasian Animal Studies Association. That's AASA, the Australasian Animal Studies Association. ASA has just launched two new prizes, which are open to people all around the world. The first prize, which is for the best journal article by an early career academic, is valued at 500 Australian dollars. The other prize that we're running in 2021 is for the best popular communications on an animal studies or animal protection issue. It's also valued at $500. To learn more about the prizes, go to the AASA website. That's www.animalstudies.org.au. And please don't forget to spread the word. This prize is available to people from all around the world. The only thing you need to do is be a member of ASA, and ASA's membership is very reasonable at just 15 Australian dollars for the unwaged or for students. Submissions close on Tuesday the 19th of October 2021, so get submitting. Can't wait to read your nominations. Anxiety is rising. From MediaPlace.com this week, extremist groups up the ante in hopes of supply chain disruptions. Sounds like a good idea to me. This is from the Animal Ag Watch column by our favorite Hannah Thompson Weeman. And she's talking about, she's still talking about the DXE conference, which was a couple of weeks ago in Oakland, California. And she points out that animal rights extremists from around the world gathered in Oakland, California last week for Direct Action Everywhere's Animal Liberation Conference. 
And she's specifically targeting for criticism the two direct action activities that they participated in. There was a march. She does, she clearly wasn't thrilled about the march, but, you know, she doesn't, I guess she recognizes that people do have a right to march. But then she ta talks about a mass protest at the poultry processing facility. You've probably read about that. It was a foster farms facility. Uh, they identified it as, as, she doesn't mention that it was foster farms or that they were a supplier to Chick-fil-A, but that's what I read in the newspapers. She also talks about a protest at a home owned by California Governor Gavin Newsom. She mentions that, but doesn't really talk about it. She's really concerned about I didn't even know about that. She's really concerned about the, the foster farms facility. The protests at the poultry processing facility and nuisance home should be particularly concerning to the animal agriculture community as they involve the use of new tactics. And uh, what she's talking about, which doesn't seem new to me, but maybe it's, maybe so, in some of the ways they're, they're, yeah, I mean, I guess in some of the ways it does seem stuff I haven't necessarily heard of or necessarily heard of being used um, in DXE protests. But what she says, that according to a DXE press release, the activists, quote, hope to maintain the blockade of the facility for 12 hours, potentially disrupting a supply chain, which notably includes, uh, she inserts, prominent restaurant and retail brands. Uh, one of them obviously being Chick-fil-A, but she doesn't mention that, as buyers. And so the idea is to shut down the facility for long enough to disrupt the supply to the restaurants. Uh, you know, when when you're fighting something as big as animal agriculture, it's hard to have any kind of an impact at all. And, you know, God love them. They're trying. They're putting themselves and their freedom at risk because obviously what they're doing is illegal. So the, the, some of the tactics they use was um, bringing in a truck and chaining themselves together on top of it, um, and it's blocking the exit, using sleeping dragon devices. Uh, that's her description, which, uh, you know, I, I, I don't doubt the accuracy of that description, which is when, but I've certainly heard of it before, handcuffing your, themselves together with within PVC pipes, and I'm um, using tubs filled with concrete, and, and then, you know, the rest of the people just are remain on public property, uh, presumably safe from arrest, enchanted. She said that the protest at Newsom's home also involved locking down, and she's horrified at this. They learned this from people in the UK, and it makes it difficult and time-consuming for law enforcement to remove activists. Of course, there are comments on this post saying how, why do we have to be careful of these people? And she thinks, quote, it's outrageous that groups like DXE would hope to disrupt the food supply chain that provides access to safe, affordable meat, poultry, dairy, and eggs to the vast majority of people who enjoy consuming them. Well, I mean, there's a lot going on here that's outrageous. That wouldn't that wouldn't be the thing that I would be considering outrageous. But, uh, you know, it's... it's she, I love this one. Their actions are a threat not only to the safety and security of animals, property, and livelihoods, but to our nation's food security. I mean, hold the phone here. The safety and security of animals is your concern? Oh, my God. All right. Another article on DXA. The Intercept. This is from Consumer Freedom, uh, the Center for Consumer Freedom. The Intercept, which you're probably familiar with The Intercept. It's a, um, it's a, a kind of lefty news site that covers um, animal agriculture with very strong critical eye. The Intercept uses journalists in bed with criminal activist group. They're the, the criminal activist group turns out to be direct action everywhere. And this is about, this is the craziest article. The Intercept has been publishing videos written and produced by one Leighton Woodhouse, who is a, an activist who is tied to the extremist group direct action everywhere. That doesn't seem to be anything that Leighton Woodhouse is trying to hide. 
in some interview, he said he had been an animal rights activist for nine years. He also disclosed that he'd even been arrested for his work with extremist groups like Direct Action Everywhere. Well, since Direct Action Everywhere courts arrest, whether it's for protests like the aforesaid or whether it's by, through uh, Open Rescue, where uh, they clearly believe that they have a have a, um, a justification defense. I mean, so that would hardly also just because he'd even been arrested. Well, a lot of people have been arrested for their work with extremist groups. <laughs> I'm quoting there, like direct action everywhere. But the problem the Center Consumer Freedom has is that The Intercept has been publishing Woodhouse's propaganda on animal rights issues under the guise of it being straight news. So that they have articles or they, they, they post these videos in articles next to news stories, including coverage of the presidential election and immigration. And viewers weren't notified that Woodhouse was an activist who would go so far as getting arrested. Nowhere in here, I might add, do they claim that anything in these videos was not true. <laughs> like, apparently, if somebody cares about an issue, um, you're not allowed to believe them. So should they? Should only meat eaters be allowed to gather information on, on animal abuse? Uh, what, what the fuck? What's going on here? Direct Action Everywhere is not some mundane social club. It is a criminal organization. This is my favorite. Sending a Direct Action Everywhere member of the week to cover the meat industry is no different than sending Greta Thunberg to do an objective report on a fossil fuels company. Yeah, I, I, I kind of agree with that. And, you know, I, that's where I would like to begin all my news. Find the beauty in ranching again. All right, I don't even know whether this is a rising anxiety story, but I just had to report it. This is from the Beef Daily column by Amanda Radke. And she has this picture of her four darling little children wearing their cowboy hats. Well, the boys are wearing cowboy hats. The girl is wearing a big bow in her hair. A lot of gender conformity in the, in, in the Radke household. Ah, so the leaves are changing colors. There's a crisp feel to the air. Cattle are being weaned. Calves worked and sold. It's payday for many ranchers, and the auction barn is the place to be. Our family spent the last couple of days bringing cow-calf pairs home, working and weaning calves, and putting up electric fence. Isn't this just charming? Like, what? I, I tend to think it's sincere, too. They just think it's sweet. These cow-calf pairs who are marching down the gravel road to the home place they know so well was just so peaceful to watch. Well, I don't know what the home place is, but apparently it's where you wean the calves. And, and presumably, like, either then or, or someplace else, you, you send them off to the, um, to the feedlot where then they get fattened up and then their throats get slit in, in a horrible slaughterhouse. Isn't it sweet? Maybe it was the beautiful sunny sky or the methodical crunch of the gravel. Maybe it was seeing the trusty old brood cow show the younger cows where to go. But I do know that God is in every single moment. And the peace, calm, and wholeness I felt in this moment, watching those cattle and our crew work together, was priceless. Yeah, you are priceless, Amanda. You really are. Tonight when you're out feeding cattle, count your blessings twice. What a gift it is to work outside, surrounding by gorgeous landscapes and beautiful cattle. It's really unbelievable, isn't it? It's really unbelievable. And that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. Well, that's it for this week's show. As always, if you like the podcast and if you're able, 
You can support us by joining the flock at ourhenhouse.org slash donate for $10 a month or $100 a year, or you can make whatever donation you're comfortable with. Another great way to support us is to leave a fabulous review wherever you listen to podcasts or on Apple Podcasts, or you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Our Hen House. If you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon Smile using Our Hen House as your favorite charity. And of course, tell your friends about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. I'm Jasmine Singer. Thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan. That's me. And to Jen Riley for her work in producing this podcast and to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Jocelyn Martinez for her work doing research and for Eric Montgomery of Podcast Haven for his work editing. Thanks to Lori Johnson of Two Trick Pony for her graphic design services. We will be back next week with a brand new show. So don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you are a Flock member, remember to check your email or the Flock Facebook page on Tuesday for your bonus content. Thanks so much for tuning in and for changing the world for animals.